Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. You're a machine, aren't you? Yes. Why didn't they build you to look like a machine? Why didn't they build you out of metal with bolts and wires and electrodes and things like that? Why'd they turn you into a lie? Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, we just recorded a video to launch our Patreon campaign. Who do you think gives the best performance? Your fucking eyebrows give the best performance. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's like you're half Muppet. Yeah, it's like I'm half Muppet if like just uh, 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 the eyebrows are set to go at arbitrary, randomized times. <laughs> There's like a drunk three-year-old with the little strings pulling them at random times, <laughs> trying to learn the ways of Muppeteering. Why does the three-year-old have to be drunk? Because I just got probably was in your house, got into some shit, you know, I mean, <laughs> probably just looking for some apple juice, kind of looked like apple juice. Well, yeah, I have to hide the liquor and all the, because my family's on to me. <laughs> just now, huh? It, just the toilet, you know, like hiding it in the toilet or whatever, that doesn't work anymore. <laughs> so it goes in the apple juice. And if, it, if there's a little drunk three-year-old, you know, that's just icing on the cake. They have pain, too. You know, they need to get away every once in a while. It's not easy being three. Now, normally that would make somebody feel shame. That is a perfect, smooth segue to mention who we have as a guest in our second segment, and that is Jennifer Jacquet, who is the author of Is Shame Necessary, um, a book that came out last year. We'll be talking to her in the second segment. And we already recorded that. Yeah, I was going to say, note how professional we are, that we're pretending as if uh, she's go- about to be on the right. show, because that's what you, our listeners, will hear. But this is like a week. And that's later. the only reason I know how to pronounce her last name, Jacquet. I would have You've been it. practicing all week, just walking down <laughs> University of Houston, Jacquet. 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 So as Tamler said, we launched our Patreon account for support. Um, so it is yet another way to support us. Probably the best way. I mean, this is something that we've been trying to do for a while and that's why we made the video and we had fun, but you can go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash very bad wizards, or you can just go to a regular very bad wizards.com page or the dot com slash support page and you'll see a link there. Um, Patreon is just this really cool interface that, uh, service that people use to, um, support People who do things like make podcasts like us. So creators, they call creating <laughs> We're creators. You don't I've never have to think that we're creators. <laughs> you know? uh, but thank you to everybody who's already, uh, who's already um, 
supported us we have some rewards you can go check out what what those little things that you'll get if you reward us yeah we have three different level of rewards we really appreciate it. we have something like because we posted this on facebook a little earlier in the week and we are i think we have something like 40 40 42 patrons um yeah it's, it makes yeah. like it also i feel like like an 18th century philosoph you know like <laughs> In salons of Catherine, it's the like the, Medi- the Medici's are giving us like <laughs> dollars. We really appreciate it. You know, I think the rewards will be kind of fun, hopefully, to do on our uh, on our part as well. There are also other ways, all the old ways to support us. Amazon still, you know, a nice uh, way to contribute. Just if you can remember, go to the very bad wizard support page, click on that Amazon link, and then shop at Amazon like you normally would, and we will get a small cut of what you buy at no cost to you. Um, also, PayPal, that link is still there. You can also contact us at Very Bad Wizards, at Peas, at Tamler on Twitter. Um, email us at verybadwizards at gmail.com. Should we talk about, there's a couple things, each from our own field, that is that why you asked whether sociology was a field? <laughs> whether science. it was a social science. <laughs> it's not my field at all, but uh, but I'll take it. I, I'm into segues, and so uh, <laughs> you're trying to polish your game. I, now that we real. have patrons, you know, like I feel you're trying like to I be professional. Step it up. As we've been doing this for four years, and all of a sudden now, you know, I got to say something funny. So we were looking. I was looking up some old emails because of um, something that we had to do for the Patreon account, and um, as I was as I was looking up some of our earliest emails i actually found a microsoft word document which was like a page of single space text that you sent me as an outline for our first episode really <laughs> yes will you send that to it's me like, i'll send it to you and it's like has like and then we can talk about this particular aspect of free will it's hilarious so if only by the way i i the whole reason i asked that question about who gives the best performance is that i thought that um, it was very clear who gave the best performance. I thought Eliza came in a close second, my daughter, but Omar, <laughs> I, I kind of really like, if you, you have to you're watch putting, it more being, than once. You're putting me below Omar. Huh? I'm putting all of it. I'm putting every, I'm putting <laughs> Eliza below Omar. Never mind us. So here's what, here's why. And you have to, you know, you've have to watch the, the video more than once, which I, I'll confess to have, to having done. Oh, Omar, your TV screen has the video burned in. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Omar is wagging his tail until I tell him he's not going to be in in the next episode, and then his tail stops wagging. I mean, that's just a that's just a really awesome choice. I thought on his part. So I think that was the funniest part of the whole fucking video. You're right. There is some there is some performance there, but we don't want to like ruin anything that's funny about it. So. <laughs> Okay, so I, I just wanted to make a, um, a a number of times I have um, sort of waxed poetic about the sorts of contributions that might be of value in our respective fields, and maybe once or twice I've said that uh, made some disparaging remarks about writing something for a collected volume, a book chapter. Since you it's, said that you would have rather be working like fifteen hours a day. 
in an apple factory in Indonesia. <laughs> I'd, than, I, like I'd that, rather that's more be, worthwhile than contributing to an editor volume, if I remember correctly. I'd, ra- I'd rather have the extended moment, sort of inf- infinitely extended moment of waiting at the dentist for root canal and having them call your name and uh, experiencing that little moment as you get up and walk and you know that you're going to have like a shitload of pain from now on till like a couple of weeks. That little moment would be more fun. You'd rather have the moment when the dentist says they're not going to prescribe Vicodin. <laughs> yeah. They're going to prescribe codeine or some bullshit like that. Perfect. Oh, no, you know what the worst one is? Yeah, it's like the... The re- the like str- like the four ibuprofens into naproxen. one like I'm, I'm naproxen. I'm like all of y- all you're doing is saving on like volume, maybe like shipping costs for ibuprofen. You just have to so- like swallow like a golf ball. It's that, like a horse well, pill. that it's like just like you could just take four Advil and it would be exactly the same. Like that is that's so worthless. Just just give. Look at me. Do I look like I'm a, an abuser of Vicodin? Just give me the Vicodin. God damn it. Well, we know that you're an abuser of Vicodin. We had you in here for an overdose of Vicodin <laughs> a year ago. Oh, Jesus Christ. Um, All right. Anyway. So, so this was um, something that came to my attention uh, <laughs> on Retraction Watch. Um, there was a professor of sociology at Penn State University who <laughs> Penn State did a press release that they then retracted. And the press release was an announcement that a woman had been asked to review a journal article. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I just couldn't believe it It, because in the retraction watch article, it said she's put out press releases like that before. So I clicked and sure enough that like when you see like, Oh, other shit related content and you know, whatever, like the Penn state university news, and then I saw this one, and this is literally the title of the press release from February 9, 2009. Sociology faculty member publishes book chapter. And I was like, wow, we are doing it wrong, man. We <laughs> well, now, wait a minute. I think you're burying the lead, as we say in journalism. They put and out a press lead. release because she agreed to review a journal article. Like, that's the no, thing. I already, that's I, like the I shit said work that. That, you sh- ought, that you have to do in academia out of the goodness of your heart because that's the only way that the machine keeps going. Like, the and idea it was that, that they... It, it was that they asked her to review. Asked, it, wasn't, wait, it wasn't even that she did it. And then they had to retract that for some reason. We don't know why. But th- there were previous versions where she actually – they didn't have to retract it. It was just a press release that she had been asked to, to do it. Now that's – Yeah, this, this is the other one. Um, Penn College faculty member reviews manuscript focused on workers in India. Uh, wait, I thought this was at publish. Penn State because I had a theory about this. It is Penn State. Oh, it is. You're okay. not listening. So to I, I have a theory about this. Tell me if you think this is plausible. <laughs> yes, I think Penn State—they're smart. They know that this is ridiculous. That you would put out a press release. Oh, that's right. You went to Penn, so you have feelings. Well, no, just bear with me here. I don't care. Okay. There was ne- that was not a rivalry that we gave okay. shit about. Um, we were much more concerned with our rivalry with uh, the, the other big five schools, Villanova, Temple, uh, St. Joe's. So anyway, right now when you think of Penn State, right, like you think of like yeah, they had yeah, covered yeah. up like there was like the Catholic how- Church of the NCAA. They had covered up like major like allegations. And, but now when you think of Penn State – You'll, you're, you're going to think of they put out <laughs> press releases 
for articles that faculty have have agreed to review. And so, like, it had to be that ridiculous to change the narrative of what Penn State is. So it's actually a stroke of genius. Uh, yeah, because it's like a, it's, it's only a mildly it's not a, it's not a negative thing because it's like no one's ble- no one's saying like this woman did something wrong. She really did get her. It's just completely miscalibrated and in a way that's just like takes all of the focus well, away from like now we can just lightly make fun of her. Right. Well, and, and Penn State, like, I don't think it's her. Like, she didn't tell them to put out. Well, probably. I don't know. I have no idea who she is. But all I know is that would you let somebody put out a press release? <laughs> No, of course not. And and also nobody like nobody wants to put out a press release for me for when like I publish a book. Never mind <laughs> like I agree to review an article. I want to put out a press release when I decline to review an article <laughs> and I would be famous. <laughs> um, All right, so let's talk okay. about uh something in my field. So like you know right, I'm like a optimistic cheerful person. Always That's look, what I, how I always describe you. That's yeah, exactly. Like how I looking describe for the good side of people uh-huh. and their work and good side of philosophy. Pollyanna-ish is really the term Poly- that I use. I, I yeah. think so, and I get that that could be annoying, right? Like that that's something like that probably gets on people's nerves. Yeah, and, my, and you never say bad at that. You know, you can't really trust somebody when they never speak ill of anybody else. <laughs> that's right, or any <laughs> part of their their field, their profession. <laughs> So anyway, my colleague Justin Coates, who's a bit more of a misanthrope, likes to give me things that will suck the optimism out of me, set me off, kind of get me into a bit of a rage stomping around the department. He did this. We talked about this, I think, on the last episode with the the rights, the children's right to be loved. Uh, He found another one, and this is from a book on well-being. Um, the title of the book, you actually have the title of the book. It's Well-Being and Death. Well-Being and, um, and Death. I, I like how you just sort of made it sound like the reason that you read this book isn't that you have been suffering from an existential crisis <laughs> about the knowledge of your own death. But I'm glad you read this, especially this portion that was pointed out to you, because I, I think there's yeah, progress. I, I can't made. say that I've read the whole book or <laughs> anything beyond... Um, the the excerpt that I'm about to read to you right now. But um, this is on well-being and death. I mean, you know, there's nothing more fundamental, right, to human existence than those two things. I used to not get the death part, but now I do. So Yeah. And well-being, I've always been mildly concerned with, at least the well-being of others. (laughs) So (laughs) so, let me just read a couple excerpts from this. So um, Caveat. I'm sure that we're taking this completely out of out of context, but it doesn't matter because even if you take this out of context. Here's an excerpt. Why accept internalism? That's always a good start right there. You know, why accept internalism? Already. Well, because internalism follows from a more general supervenience principle closely related to one endorsed by G.E. Moore, and that is SUP, the acronym SUP, which stands for the intrinsic value of something depends solely on its intrinsic properties. If SUP is true, the intrinsic value of a time is determined by its intrinsic nature, not by anything happening at any other time. So then he says this, nowadays it is common to reject SUP. Totally. Right? Right. Yeah. No. In fact, I was just out to brunch today and I overheard at the, the waiter and the bartender kind of uh, <laughs> talking about how ridiculous SUP was. 
<laughs> well, you know, whenever I hear someone talking about SUP, I'm like, oh, 70s, you know, it's like <laughs> that is so over. But SUP is a requirement of any acceptable theory of well-being. Just to refresh mm-hmm. your memory, a requirement of any acceptable theory of well-being is that the intrinsic value of something depends solely on its intrinsic properties. I don't know, Valerie Tiberius, how did this not come up? In our discussion of value. It's almost, it's almost embarrassing because, as I just read, SUP is a requirement of any acceptable theory of well-being. As, as so said. Valerie must have an unacceptable theory of well-being. Okay. I think that's what we are being too snarky think. about this because now it's about to get good. <laughs> okay. This is because, as noted above, the value atoms should be instantiations of the fundamental good or bad making <laughs> properties. That last part in, ital- in italics. The properties that are fundamentally and completely responsible for how well a world or a life or a dot, dot, dot goes. Suppose SUP were false. No, it's, it ain't so. I tried twice. I, I cannot suppose. This is this is like I think this is what sets like the brave philosophers apart. (laughs) Just that you're able to imagine a a world, even hypothetically, where SUP was false. That you're able to look into that darkness. I defend my imaginative resistance to not suppose this. (laughs) But we're doing it. We're just we're going to be hard. We're going to be gangster. (laughs) Suppose SUP were false. Then there could be two properties, F and G, such that. Such that the only intrinsically good states of affairs are those involving the instantiation of F alone, but whose values are determined by whether there are any instantiations of G. See, now okay. I'm already feeling like I shouldn't it's, have supposed SUP was false. But it gets worse. If that were true, F would fail to be a fundamental <laughs> good or bad-making property, for instantiations of F would fail to completely determine what value there is. The fundamental good or bad-making property would involve both F and G, contrary to our assumption. Whatever that was. I'm not sure what our assumption was. This, again, um, in the book, Well-Being and Death. I'm, I'm done being snarky. Like, it's, it was funny. It was funny until I sat here and I tried to seriously understand what was being said. And now I know I haven't read the book. And I know what, but It's unfair. I, it's Maybe. <laughs> The value, but I don't know. No, this is not a fair. What, how can you just, when you say suppose SUP were false, then there could be two properties, F and G. Are, did he just that. grab those? Did he just grab F and G? Did she, like this went through peer review and like this paragraph, someone read this paragraph. This is, uh, you know, an Oxford See, book. I think you should have a press release if you peer reviewed this. <laughs> It's like what? What the fuck are you talking about? This make like there could be two properties F and G such that the only intrinsically good states of affairs are those involving the instantiation of F alone, but whose values are determined by whether there are any instantiations of G. You know, this is about like the thing that's like most important in life. Like what's what makes a good life? What makes we're talking about the instantiation of F alone, G alone, fundamental good or bad making properties. The best to the best of my ability, it seems as if he's saying. For something to be good or bad, it requires more than just one thing. It requires two things, F and G. Now, what those... Two, wait, so two value atoms, then? There can't just be two one value, value atoms, atom? They, they, they bond. It's a covalent, it's a covalent <laughs> value bond. It's a, 
and then and then pretty soon you get to value Krebs cycles with enough evolution, and then we, and then we can get to. <laughs> isn't that like a comic book, Adam Man or something? Like, isn't there a comic book hero? Yeah, maybe there should be like value Adam Man. <laughs> value Adam Man. I'm an indivisibly intrinsic good. <laughs> <laughs> well, last little sentence, because this is if 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 that weren't enough to get you to accept internalism. Which is, by the way, a total pseudo debate. Like that debate, the internalism, externalism debate. But is, I'm not. But it, internalism about what? I well that. Oh no, he defines internalism. The intrinsic value of a time for a person is determined entirely by the value atoms obtaining at that time. That's internalism. Uh... Yeah, the intrinsic value <laughs> of a time for a person is determined entirely by right. value atoms. Obtaining at that time. Oh, this is fucking. Uh, now, I now I am mad. Now my optimism I, has been. Nice job, Justin. <laughs> this is a, something that philosophers used to. Was yes, there was a time where philosophers were trying to not indulge in in total gibberish. Just blah 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 blah. blah. But it's all <laughs> redeemed by this. Another reason to accept internalism, again, if you're not convinced already, is that it helps us to solve a puzzle raised by Epicurus. For this solution, the reader will have to wait until section 3.3. No! Two chapters later. No! How many readers will have the willpower to to just keep the suspense Uh, and go through two more chapters before getting to 3.3? What do you think? So I I don't think I think people will skip right to it. It'll be like a choose your own adventure book. They'll just go right to it. This is like essentially I I don't want to be an ass. Like and I'm kind of I being don't an ass about this, right? So so I think but I do think that it's worth talking about like what you know, there are a couple of possibilities here. One is that we don't understand the point that he's making, whether or not the point is a good one. Uh another is he doesn't. And I, I'm very happy to say that it's probably that I don't understand it, but, but that really, it, it is a point that we've made before uh, it, that when you write, you really do want, if, if it's at all possible to say things in a way that more people would understand rather than fewer people would understand, this is the, this is the bane of, of a lot of sort of humanities writing nowadays, like postmodern humanities writing where, where there is a, a an increased sort of social pressure to speak speak in in cryptic like in group words and you lose completely lose sight of the the plain simple english statement if you are to be relevant and valued it there is this desire to push a kind of a it's a kind of an inaccessibility heuristic so i know that i can't understand a physics paper published in science right so how do i feel when i'm writing just about happiness how do I make other people take my stuff seriously? I put barriers to their understanding that makes it seem like what I'm doing is a lot more complicated than what I'm actually doing. And I think that this is just no one person maybe has that intention of doing it. But that and only that can account for the arms race of like fucking cryptic language in so many of like not just philosophy and just you know just i think it's, uh, it, this is a problem that's a problem i remember I've, I've said this before i think on the podcast my playwriting teacher said the number the cardinal sin of writing is willful obscurity and yeah. it is the kind of the kind of writing where people you you're you're actually aiming your your intention is to make people not understand you and therefore think you're brilliant and like i have no patience from for that when it's like hegel who was probably a brilliant man, maybe a, a first t- 
pure thinker in philosophy. I'll never know because I, I, I can't get through his books. But but like the idea that this is just happening as kind of run of the mill philosophy bullshit that that's 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 even worse. Yeah. So here's my here's what I uh, would like to to say to our audience. We are let not let us not seem to be communicating that we are incapable of willful obscurity. So, you know, if you feel like reading something that we read just to look for some stupid shit we've said and you want to call us out on it, that's what we're here for, man. If you're you want to find out of context some excerpt (laughs) of our work. Then I right. uh, feel free. We will read it. We'll read it on the podcast. That's how committed we, we are to clear and plain language, self mockery, as not out of the question, but clear and plain language and writing. Like I want to know if I'm doing that. I, in fact, <laughs> I, one of the notes, like I got a referee for my book in uh, you know relative justice that said like stop with the fucking acronyms, essentially. Right. And uh, I, I later found out it was Ron Mallon. It was right. Like I was doing it too. It's it's the way the 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 structure is set up. It's like that. It 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 force. It doesn't force you to do it. That's not. In fact, that's a too easy an excuse to say it forces you to do it. But it, it you have to resist the temptation to to <laughs> do that shit. Still, I I don't think I've ever written. I don't think anybody can find something that makes as little sense as this. And, I and have that co- is that I have, disconnected always blame it from, on my from the actual thing that we're talking about, um, the topic that I'm supposed to be writing about. I don't think like I, I don't think you can find that in my entire corpus. I think we should read this article. This is Claire Claire Levin retweeted this one. It is a, a an abstract for an article called Meaning and the Measuring Apparatus. And this is I am gonna read to you word for word the abstract by Jody Kaufman from Georgia State University. Meaning haunts me. First brain. At once its foundations are nebulous and its consequences profound as bodies are broken and raised on its surface. An artifice that cuts deeply meaning and its accomplice, the measuring apparatus, consume me. To assuage this haunting consumption, like your haircut, in a series of eight vignettes inspired by posthumanism, I use a form of artistic inquiry to contemplate meaning and the measuring apparatus in qualitative research. Keywords autoethnography arts-based inquiry wait wait, wait, what's the keyword auto what (laughs) autoethnography sounds dirty (laughs) (laughs) autoethnography can't you find someone else to ethnograph with (laughs) autoethnography four okay we need to do more self-mod we promise more speaking of my hair it, it, in the video, it does look like I have a rat tail because I hadn't got a haircut yet. I, I, oh, I, I don't even think you, I had a rat tail care? then. Why do you care so like, much about you care so much about what people think about you? Just my hair because people are making fun <laughs> of my hair. Um, we'll be right back to talk with somebody who doesn't write obscurely, Jennifer Jacquette. Look at you! Look at you and your segue game. You've been <laughs> rehearsing this shit.
Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. We're here with Jennifer Jaquette. Is that how to pronounce it? Jaquette. Jaquette. Oh, okay. She re- she strongly rejects the f- the French yes. pronunciation. You don't yeah. like the French. I need some way so people know I'm American. <laughs> Just you don't want to sound hoity-toity. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Jennifer is an assistant professor of environmental studies at NYU. I actually learned about you, Jennifer, when I was working on a book proposal. I saw your proposal. It was given to me as an example of what I should do or as a model. (laughs) No, no, no. It was very helpful. But this was about three years ago when I was really struggling with it. So you just ripped ripped off her. Did you just search and replace? Like (laughs) honor with shame. Yeah, no, that's what I'm going to do right now. Is honor necessary? So uh, uh, Jennifer is the author of Is Shame Necessary? A book that came out last year, right? Yep. And we this came up organically on our discussion of the Dan Cahan paper, um, or Dan Cahan paper, however you pronounce that. There's a lot of pronunciation issues already. The end of that paper, for those listeners that listened to our discussion about that, talked about shaming punishments as a way of making alternative sanctions politically acceptable. Because if you add shame to things like community service or things like fines, then you are expressing or conveying the appropriate condemnation. But in our discussion, both of us, and I guess especially David, yeah, you guys are all pro shame. Well, no, it was more you. You were, I think, rightly pointing out that the what he actually wanted, or what he was recommending, or what what is a shaming punishment. That's not something that was really fleshed out. Your book it fleshes out the concept of shame and shame and the function of shame. So this is perfect. Right. Yeah. First of all, I want to ask you how the hell an environmental studies professor who studies fish. Um, made her way to shame. Yeah, I mean, a lot of... I'm interested in environmental issues, and the thing about the environmental issues that I'm most interested in, which are overfishing and climate change, is that they're really large-scale, they're really transboundary, and we really know enough in terms of the natural science. So I would say my academic career was around sort of the social science, environmental social science. How do we... Uh, change human behavior, change policies, and so that led me to um, to shame, actually. And so, what what is this climate change that you're talking about? It? <laughs> yeah, it's this really interesting <laughs> phenomenon. Just hit the radar. How do you explain the fact that it snowed in April? In <laughs> yeah, so we have to shame people who don't know the difference between weather and climate as well. <laughs> so you're. Your interest is in trying to figure out how to get people to care about the environment and behave in a way that stops us from destroying the planet. And it is a big problem. Like, I feel it because I barely care about the environment. A lot of obstacles to overcome in getting people to behave properly. Yeah. Well, and I think that's the key is behaving properly rather than caring. So I I care. I, I mind less if you don't care and more if you don't behave properly. So you're like a behavioral economist. Yeah, I would say. 
Right. You could give a fuck about what's actually going on in our head. Well, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say that, but you'll as we talk, you'll see why. I mean, if we're talking about the psychology of the criminal, I think that becomes a, a really tough issue if you're talking about ExxonMobil. What is its psychology? Right. Uh, and that's and I guess that's the another problem is that a lot of the major players, the people who can make a difference aren't people. They it's they're just this massive corporation. Exactly. And it's very hard to even know how to address that issue. And you can't put a corporation in prison. So that option is off the table. So as you are contrasting these different op- options for punishment, that they become very different when you start thinking about groups versus individuals. You know, so let's talk a bit about what shame is and just like distinguish. I taught psychology of emotion and shame is just one of those emotions that you have to kind of describe by differentiating it from other common emotions. And so you start off um, when talking about the emotion of shame, which is different from the practice of shaming, um, as distinguishing it from guilt and embarrassment, which I think are the two big sort of in the family resemblance kind of emotions so what's the difference between shame and guilt because this is critical i think to the to what your point is well i think you will correct me if i get this wrong at all hopefully um but you, you know more than me by far <laughs> no, by now. but the, the the main difference and and the thing is is that people do have different ways of describing these things so the important thing for me in the book was just to lay out my definitions at least yeah. from the from the start and one is that sort of guilt is maybe who you are in the dark when no one's watching, it's between you and your own. Sexy? So it means sexy? <laughs> yeah. You are at your sexiest, I'm sure, um, when you're feeling really guilty. And, um, and then shame is much more about who you are in the presence of others. And that aspect of exposure then really relates to the, to the personal emotion. Just to clarify, so shame, it, you, you can't feel shame if nobody knows that you prefer performed the transgression well i mean darwin uses the terms uh, even imagining what others think about us so it could be an imagined audience i i do think that you can feel shame on your own but there's or, sort of always a social element to it and another distinction that you point to which i think is a standard one and again i mean I, again i agree with you some some of it is just carving out like linguistically yeah. you know um but is that guilt is generally viewed as a response to a transgression that gives rise to feeling that you need to make amends is is very focused on the act itself and shame like the object of shame is your entire self Mm -hmm. like it says something about who you are as a person and And it can be not something that you did it can just be the fact that you have a big nose or you got a bad haircut you got a bad haircut yeah right like uh you've gotten a haircut in a long time (laughs) Well, how how did they describe your haircut? The twelve year old. Oh yeah, <laughs> I don't think you felt enough shame about that. My fundamental question is, what emotion did I feel when I was masturbating as a teenager? <laughs> was there really an Im- imagined audience? Was that shame? I thought it was guilt. Yeah. But I guess w- one way of distinguishing, and this is a real conceptual point here, yeah, which is that you don't have to endorse a norm to feel shame, right? Yeah. So it could be just what everybody else believes. Like I don't personally think it's wrong, but I know that everybody else you think it's might. very right. <laughs> well, let me say that in doing the research for the book, of course, I have a Google alert for shame. So Michael Fassbender's movie Shame, which is all about mm. sex addiction, I never saw it. Well, it 
it plays right into what you're talking about, and it really messed up my research for a long time. So, <laughs> what in a sexy way? <laughs> the film is not particularly sexy. I think the title says it all. <laughs> There's a lot of Michael Fassbender's penis. That's is true. That, oh, you've seen it too. God damn it! What am I? What have I been doing with my life? Um, <laughs> this whole time you could have been seeing Michael Fassbender's. Penis. <laughs> I know. So the emotion of shame, then, um, it could, like, let's talk a bit about embarrassment, then. So the different, what's the difference between shame and embarrassment? Because embarrassment involves blushing and a perceived audience as well, right? Yeah, and so, but says something much less about, again, your sort of whole self or, or something deep about your character. And in the book, I describe these experiments that are really cool on little kids um, where they will tell them, oh, every little kid put together this puzzle in two minutes let's see if you can do it and uh they set the clock so that none of them are able to do it and they code their expressions and and then they also tell them you're so handsome or you're so beautiful and and they show different um emotional displays uh for those two things and and of course shame is more the display that they show when they can't put together the puzzle in time because it says something about their whole self embarrassment is the kind of natural and uh, display that they show when they're being excessively complimented. So there are even ways to, you know, sort of examine this in kids. I, I describe like, you know, if you have toilet paper on your shoe, you might even blush, which has traditionally been a sign of shame, but you're really not, it's not something about your whole self. It doesn't say something about your moral character, right? It's just kind of a... Oh, so shame is something you connect to your moral self to some degree. Yes. Or to I, a large I, degree. Yeah, or to the or to the moral values of society. Maybe. So then, I can't really feel shame for having a big nose, but I could be embarrassed about having a big nose. Well, yes, I see your point. Um, no, the, I think you can still feel ashamed for physical abnormalities, right? Um, but embarrassment just typically is about a kind of transgression that doesn't is not moral in character. So maybe it's better as a way of just defining embarrassment than it is of a way of defining shame. So one of the striking things in your book, and this is something I've looked at too, cross-cultural differences in shame and how often people experience shame, how much they describe shame. Uh, maybe the most striking result that you had was that that study where you ask people to list like their their I think it was a Fet Dan Fessler yeah, like Dan 50 Fessler's. emotions that they experience and it was like second for Indonesians shame was second and it 49th or something for for Californians yeah just around bored and frustrated yeah that was Dan Fessler's work and it was really great to show kind of the um the hierarchy of of these emotions in daily society at least the way we talk about them or perhaps even feel them and one of the things that people say is that guilt has replaced shame right in individualistic societies like our own and usually not always like not in my work but in usually that's talked about as a good thing right yeah oh i think it is a good thing if you believe it what do you mean if you believe it well, I mean, I, I think one of the points I kind of make in the book, but just gently because I am not too certain about this, but is in uh, maybe those societies like the one Dan studied in Indonesia or um, small-scale hunter-gatherer societies, there's no word for guilt at all. And that could be because they don't have a lot of time alone. They aren't alone with themselves in the dark, kind of. Right. And, and so really maybe guilt just <laughs> slid in. 
um, <laughs> where where shame used to be for us. I mean, because we're alone in the dark so often. Because we're 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 alone all the time in the dark all the time. Yeah, whatever. Right. Well, I mean, that's one of the things you, that you point out is that like the nuclear family. I mean, even less than the nuclear family, just the in the proportion of individuals who live just completely alone in right. our society is much greater than others. And it could be this is an interesting case in which the culture. Right, we probably all have access to these emotions, shame and guilt, and just the culture has, ha, by by dint of the structure of society or by dint of the cult, the values that a culture places on particular emotions. You know, Jeannie Tsai from from Stanford, she does this work on affect valuation, and so she shows that Eastern cultures, um, uh, Chinese and Japanese cultures specifically, value calmness as the positive emotion that's that's the most important one to have. Whereas in Western cultures, we've, we value these high arousal emotions. Um, yeah, well, that emotions. is so obvious through that documentary babies. Have you seen it with the Mongolian woman who does not even, there's not a peep from her mouth when she gives birth. Like it's wow. an amazing scene. My experience. And, and I think this is this it, it's, it really is telling growing up with a Latin American mother and father, the word shame did not have the negative connotations that it does sort of in my, in my daytime life as an American. The, like it was a value, it was a valued emotion so much so that one of the things that you tell little miscreants is that they're shameless. Miscreants? It doesn't ha- yeah. <laughs> you like that word? <laughs> Sin vergüenza is literally without shame and it's an insult. Like you, you need to check yourself because you are not experiencing the appropriate amount of shame. Um, and that was, I mean, that it just seemed to be such a good regulator of my behavior. I mean, to a point where I started resenting it. Um, and I think probably many people from collectivist cultures that are raised in the United States feel this resentment that their parents care so much about what other people will think. I don't know if you Jews feel it. Yeah. You know, it's a very complicated mix of guilt and shame. (laughs) Oh, that brings me to one of the points that I wanted to make, uh, which just completely undermined your credibility, uh, Jennifer. You said you said that there is no word for guilt in the Hebrew Old Testament. And um, maybe you're probably right. I just on principle can't believe this. So it must be the case that like Eskimos, um, there's just 12 words for guilt or something. (laughs) Old Testament is about shame, not guilt. Is is it guilt come from the our mothers? It's the mother. <laughs> when? No, when? but it, it's a very modern. Uh, it's also I, I talk about Shakespeare having used the word shame something like three hundred forty four times and guilt thirty three times. Right. Um, this is not just uh, Indonesians or Jewish people. It's also even modern society is much more obsessed with guilt. It's similar, like, to honor and justice have a similar, like, Hmm. you see so many more mentions of honor in Shakespeare than you do justice. Dan Demetrio on his blog kind of uh, posted about this. It's like 700 to 22 or something like that. And I bet there's a connection between, certainly there's a connection between honor and shame, but between guilt and justice, too. Yeah, and and between those parallels, maybe about the, the social nature of those words. Right. You make a distinction that I really like, or you phrase it in a way that I really like, which is there's a supply side and a demand side to regulating behavior, and that shame and guilt are two different sides, like they map on to two different sides. And you tell the story of 
of um, the tuna companies yeah. and, and the dolphins. Yeah. So, so say what you mean about the supply and the demand side. I think it's a, just a nice metaphor. You know, if you sort of believe in the free market and you think that um, it, some people think that consumers are responding to producers, and I think there's a lot of evidence for that. But then, uh, you know, I think the classic, more classic view is that producers are responding to consumer demand. And um, when you are a producer and you're trying to avoid regulations and sort of changing your industry, one way of skirting that is to say, we're just doing what consumers want us to do. And if consumers change, we'll change. And, um, and producers are, are, of course, groups of people. Uh, they tend not to be individuals and consumers are all mostly individuals. So in the case of like dolphins and tuna, right. um, there, you, you can imagine change coming from people realizing this, feeling really guilty about it and then putting pressure on the suppliers. Um, and to then change the behavior, right? Or even um, shaming the suppliers, which is what happened. There was an enormous shame campaign against these tuna suppliers for for them killing dolphins in their uh, practices. But um, ultimately, they said, "Well, you know, now consumers who feel guilty can just buy tuna that where we don't kill dolphins." And um, and I was nine years old, Dolphin and I, safe. yeah, dolphin safe tuna, exactly. And and so I was really encouraged by this as a kid and I thought oh great and it wasn't until later that I realized oh the entire industry didn't change just this section that was uh, that was easing my conscience changed and what I really had wanted was for dolphins to be safe the point is that in these kind of markets let's say sustainable seafood organic blueberries whatever you still tend to have sort of less than 20 and often far less than 10 percent of the market that's actually doing the right thing. And whereas before, I would say before this whole labeling movement, you used to have um, people engage by changing the production system as a whole. Now they engage as consumers and they say, we're going to exercise our, our action through our pocketbooks, etc. But what else could we do? Like- well, we could legislate and, and regulate the entire industry like we did with the Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act. But I, I, my thinking has evolved in a bit on this subject because I do understand, like especially with fisheries and, and other industries, there are massive global uh, supply chains. And that makes it sometimes really hard to use regulation. And so we're trying to sort of, in, through some of these labeling schemes, not all of them, but we're trying to fill the void that, that globalization created, the regulatory vacuum that global, globalization created through expressing consumer preference. I have gotten a little bit softer on that front. Just because okay. of the sheer difficulty. Yeah. The sheer difficulty of trying to pass regulations in right. 150 countries. <laughs> But it is. I mean, it is an interesting strategy. I mean, imagine that Apple said, "Oh, you know, we've heard your complaints about child labor laws, and so here's what we're going to do: we're going to sell two versions of the iPhone, one that has like no no child labor sticker on it, yeah, and we'll just let the consumer decide child labor free, <laughs> child labor free, right? Yeah, and we'll let the consumers vote with their you know with their purchases. Um, it it does seem as if is if that's the wrong way to... Well, to... I mean, it's better than nothing because it means that there's going to be less few, less child labor, right? I mean, like, it's... If if the alternative is that or nothing, like, isn't, like... Yeah, but that's not the alternative. Right? The alternative would be that that the shame is strong enough on the part of the... Right, I, and, and I don't I don't know if it's shame, but the, what what's 
uh, Apple is doing now is just trying to actually change the entire writ, writ large, right? Not like creating a a separate product category of like child right. labor. Well, uh, right, and of course that would be best. But I guess the point is that on the way to these wholesale changes, you get these piecemeal changes. That. Well, I think that because it, so if you look at so many kind of social movements, efforts to get a, a minimum wage or efforts to get a higher minimum wage or um, efforts to end child labor, this is these are always a pretty small amount of people who are highly motivated to work on these problems. And what happens is the rest of people sort of say, like, I don't care enough to work on it, but I also don't care enough to oppose actively oppose what you're doing and right. what i think has happened with all of this labeling stuff is it's been almost a kind of um like a soma for the people who it would have been highly motivated where they uh, want to do something yeah. and instead what they do is just consume the right products rather than still working wholesale on the on the industry so they would have been really motivated to bring about like a big change but now they have their soma that's a great metaphor it's 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 almost like opening it up for moral licensing in a way that wouldn't have been possible before, before. Right. exactly and it's also been a little bit strategic because they'll say look this is what we've done for you people why can't you be happy look you can have this and 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 like the nine-year-old me think you're right i'm not contributing directly to this problem anymore this is great except oh wait there are still hundreds of thousands of dolphins dying because the rest of the market isn't consuming this way that's interesting. That and is so, very interesting. Yeah, and, and, and hurtful because like this is me with free range <laughs> like meat products. You so know, hurtful. Like, it's well, so disappointing. Shameful. Yeah. yeah. Well yeah, so it is so guilt really is calibrated to your own actions, right? And so so long as you can stop feeling guilty for what you do, then you can kind of wash your hands. Um but maybe this is the point that shame is a collect, like more of a collective emotion where you can say I am ashamed of the way that we as society are doing something. Right. No, and you'll see shame used a lot around <clears throat> child labor, around minimum wage, around working standards, and in part why the example of the iPhone where it's slave-free labor sounds funny is that <laughs> we just give these issues higher moral status as well, right, than the ones we've been talking about, a dolphin-safe or cage-free. They just don't have the same kind of moral. What are some seriously practical ways in using shame to bring about these big changes? One that I'm tracking closely, I'm really interested in. So uh, major corporations, transboundary, publicly traded corporations, they um, are tracking reputational risk a lot. So shaming is one of the tools we can use. And I've also kind of come along in my thinking on this because there have been already let's say coal it has been shamed. There's a strong stigma now against coal in the marketplace. In fact, so strong that they complain of being stigmatized. <laughs> um, yeah, which right. is interesting how a commodity can be stigmatized. But um, I, instead, I think the more interesting areas on, on banks, for instance, on finance, because yeah. this is not only a sector that's very sensitive to reputation because they have a lot of consumer arms and, and strong brands, but they also have a choice, right, in what they do. So coal companies, Peabody is not going to switch into solar overnight. I mean, that's not an option. But J.P. Morgan can switch from coal to solar overnight. And in fact, you see these amazing uh, shaming 
campaigns that go after big banks, and they've really changed their policies in a lot of ways. In fact, J.P. Morgan just last month said it will divest in coal. For the collective, like for the bank or you know the coal industry, or whatever, there is no person experiencing shame. So part of shaming is that it's not necessary to induce an emotion in anybody right. um, at, at the collective level. And you say this, I, I, I like the way you say it. You say, you know, shame is cheap, right? Well, shame is cheaper, but, but one thing that um, you guys didn't bring up in the Cahan talk, which, but I yeah. actually like James Whitman. He's a, a lawyer at, at Yale too. His concern is much more for the audience because he's saying, you know, this represents an inappropriate relationship between the state and the audience or society. And you are actually relying on citizens to do the punishing if you use shame. And the whole point of creating this state system was to alleviate the average citizen of their urge to punish. And so che- shaming is can be cheap, but it can also be very expensive in the amount of attention it needs and the kind of like constant upkeep. I would say it's it's kind of cheap, but also very needy at the same time. So, so let's since you brought up Nussbaum, let's talk about that because she's probably in some ways your opponent in the sense that she is very much against the idea of public shaming. But but There's you know, re- I wouldn't want to yeah. just step in there because she's she doesn't talk explicitly about corporations. She's very interested in individuals. And she also wrote that book without ever once mentioning the internet. And how the internet has changed state shaming policies is really interesting. So I'm not quite sure that she would be opposed to this kind of 2.0 version that I'm thinking about. Yeah, so you guys brought up the state tax delinquent policies. I mean, that's a perfect example of, I think, something that even Martha Nussbaum might be on board with. You think like cause yeah. you, t- you tell a really interesting story of her talking about her mother, yes, who struggled with alcoholism and uh, and drunk driving. You know, what if somebody had put a because uh, a drunk driving? I am a drunk driver license plate. She even concedes it might have been effective, but it would have destroyed her dignity. Right. And, that's a tough issue, though, because like we just had a student killed by a drunk driver. There, that student that was killed was their dignity was destroyed too. And if there was a technique that would get the person to stop drunk driving, then why wouldn't we think about why would we place at the highest priority the the dignity of the person being shamed? Oh, I mean, I'm completely on board with your point. Nussbaum may draw the line still further than you or I would, but I'm arguing that I think she would be probably in support of some forms of state shaming punishments. Maybe not that one in particular, but like the the shaming of tax delinquents. Yes, because there's an absence of, of other forms of punishment. So you didn't mention how there is no debtor's prison at the state level. So prison is not an option for these people also it's um going after the ultra ultra rich the the biggest delinquent right now in california owes over two twelve million dollars in personal income tax oh we should post a link to to whatever their (laughs) is there like a public shaming profile page well it's not a profile it's just their name and address and they also it (laughs) should be noted too their address too that seems that's see beverly hills baby i mean that seems like you're just you're just 
enticing people to vigilante justice. But nothing like that has happened so far. It's been up since 2007. And the real issue here, which I think is really interesting, is they say it's the threat of shame that's so effective. Like once they're on that list, it's much less likely they're going to pay their taxes. But they email or they send them letters Uh, saying it's the threat. You will be on that. Yes. If you don't pay within 30 days, six months, whatever. Well, that's the that's when shame is functioning at its best is when it doesn't have to be implemented. It's just the threat of it. That or any punishment. You, yeah. Yeah. Right. Or any punishment. But now, something you said just now and something you said in the book, I wanted to press you on a little bit. It's a much weaker claim to say when shame is the only option, when no other punishment yeah. is possible, then we should use shame. So that's one claim. But... A stronger claim would be, no, we should, even when imprisonment, say, is an option or some other punishment is an option, we should still think about shaming just because it's more effective, it's more, it's cheaper. This was Kahan's point. It's actually better for the person being shamed. It's better to be shamed than to spend five years in prison. So my only concern there is what I'm urging is for people to use the democratic justice system. And to to avoid the vigilantism. So okay. I, what I like is I agree that the, actually the state shaming punishments are probably more effective or as effective probably as, as the threat of prison, right? Um, and maybe in some cases. Uh, maybe not, though. That's a good empirical question. But what I don't like, and you see this all the time in academia too, right, with like um, sexual harassment cases, is that they use reputation as their first line of attack the students do or or whoever um rather than going there is a formal process in place that would listen to both sides and i think that democratic justice system that we've been fostering has been you know beneficial now when that fails as it does many times then i understand turning to reputation but i'm just encouraging people to not reach immediately for reputation when there's a formal option that has, you know, been thought through pretty substantially. I would agree with that because, uh, like, ideally, I would want these tax evaders to serve prison time, to be honest. If it's like, you know, clearing 18 people who, who sold a dime bag of weed and putting right. in a $12 million tax evader, like, I'm all for the $12 Well, this million. is where it comes back to something you said on the previous show, too, is that you said it's hard to calibrate shaming, but it's mm-hmm. hard to calibrate any punishment. I mean, look, that's it, a perfect it, example. It is, but, but as I was saying, first of all, I love that you listened to the previous episode. You know, I don't think any other guest ever listens to our shit, so thank you. Um, but one of the points I was trying to make is that there is an easier way to calibrate just by dint of like the, a sentencing guideline where there is a standard like n- number of days served. Like that's just, you don't have that option in shaming. There is no dose of shame that you can meet out. Well, that you could have to wear, you could have to have the the <clears throat> license plate saying you're a drunk driver for one year, and then it gets taken off. But see, the, but the, I think the very power of shame is that you're tagged now, right? Like it is as long lasting as people's memory. Well, that's true with prison too. No, it's not because the punishment you're that you're a felon. Meeting, you can't no, get a no, job. No, no, you have to, you can't, no, you're speaking of the shame that comes along with a prison sentence, which granted. Right. But I'm saying that you're meeting out a, an actual dose of punishment, which is three years in prison. At the end of those three years, you are no longer put in prison. But it, it, it would be akin to putting someone in prison and saying, like, I don't know when you're going to get out. Like, right? That's Except that prison also has that. 
I think prison does also have, I mean, you're worried about sort of the dose response mechanism. And I think your argument that some people are particularly sensitive is, is obviously true, but I would say that's true across punishments. We've had shaming punishments, let's say in the classroom, like the dunce cap, right? Those people are not still feeling it 50 years later. But you guys are missing my point. I'm not saying that, that prison, uh, or fines, for instance, don't, may not bring along shame. I'm saying that if shame is the goal of the uh, of the punishment, I mean, if if that is the the method of punishment, there is no there is nothing akin to meeting out a certain dose of shame. And so, whether or not what we what we very much don't want is for the punishment to be dependent upon something as fickle as an individual difference, right? Or or as fickle as I think this is more the concern, uh, fickle as the crowds. Uh, attention span. Right. And so you you see a lot of variability. And I think what would be really concerning, and I, I've been thinking about this more too, is that, you know, other psychologists have pointed out that the very rich and the very poor are most insulated from shaming. But I think the very rich are exceptionally insulated because people... Uh, the they me- have hush money. They have hush <laughs> money. They have, they have resources to entice people back into their social sphere. Um, and so I imagine that that they they may have uh, they may be extra sensitive, as in the case with the the tax evaders, but they may also have this very short response that you're talking about. And then, so here's another issue: as you say, shame is calibrated to the norms of a particular community. Did you guys see the Big Short? Yeah. There's a great scene where there talking to these two bankers in a in a bar about all the bad loans that they've given out and bundled together and uh, and then there's this conversation afterwards where it's like how are they why are they confessing all that and then i think the steve carell's character says you don't understand they're bragging what if the target of the shame is proud of what they've done or i guess more more worrisome in their community. Right. It's, it's like a badge of honor rather than a mark Banker of Banker bonuses, trophy hunting. There are right. m- a million cases of this where the subculture has very different values than the broader than society. Than the part, the, the culture that's trying to shame them. Right. So like the shame can be, you know, Trump is like this, right? Right. When he gets pilloried by the liberal <laughs> media, like that's just people love him all the more. If you already loved him. Well, and same with those drunk driving plates. They're called party plates in some states and people try to get them. That's just insane. Right. So what do you do about that? How does shame (laughs) deal with that? This is why it's a very, um, and and prison too. I think punishment in general is just a really interesting, fickle arena, deserves a lot more attention and research, but... What do you do about it? I mean, I think maybe these these values have to come a lot earlier in life. The interesting part is that again, it the power of shame if you can rally people behind it, it almost doesn't matter if the person is shameless because if it's doing what it is supposed to do, which is threaten threaten an individual with sort of ostracism, removal from the group. So long as you have valuable members of the group engaging in the shaming, it it doesn't require, uh, as you point out with guilt, it doesn't require any internalization of the standard. It just requires that people treat you differently. In the case of Trump, there's just not enough people who have power over him. Shame is somewhat dependent on the on the collective force of the people doing the shaming. And but it, it, does- it, it also does have this... Um- 
I think the other thing is that even if you have these subcultures that actively work against it, and, and this is actually was just listening to a lecture by someone from the fashion world that was talking about this, because fashion is is actively subversive, right? So trying to get it to adhere to any sort of value system is is a total waste of time. But I think still uh, solidifying the values, making them seen, you may actually see that generationally there will be a difference, right? That it may not work in that instance, but 10 years later, things have shifted drastically. And one thing I wanted to just add, which I was kind of surprised about in doing research for the book, was that actually it seemed that even state-shaming policies could be more protective and get more support than transparency, which has been sort of the battle cry of uh, the 21st century, right? Is like everything we do should be public, especially what the government does. And that idea seemed interesting to me. So if, if the policy was to publish all tax delinquents online, that would just be a, a, a transparency policy. But that's not the policy. The policy is only to publish the worst 500, which is what makes it right. a shaming policy. Right, right. Which like the Ashley Madison file dump, is meaningless until somebody goes on and starts individually posting singling people, and out. Singling people out because no I loved that idea that you had so also with teachers rather than publishing everybody's evaluations you publish just the best and the worst so you get honor working for you and you get shame working for you and then the rest of the people will be left alone yeah i've been saying sort of because the battle cry has been sunlight is the best disinfectant but my argument is that sometimes the spotlight is better than sunlight (laughs) should we take a quick break um and we'll come back because i do want to talk more about internet stuff Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. Okay, we're with Jennifer Jacquet. You pointed us to uh, to a particularly um, entertaining slash sad instance of of shaming, which is uh, mantles. So the all male panel. The all male yeah. panel. Can you explain what it is? <laughs> well, it's a website where you can submit photos or instances of conferences, government events uh, that include only men on their panel and there's a david hasselhoff icon this is giving a giving why david hasselhoff because it's obvious i i feel it's just funny it's like i can't see him objectively knight rider was my favorite show when i was (laughs) 
can. <laughs> well, so this probably appeals to you. Now I, I don't even remember the car's name. What was it? Cat? Kit. Cat. Kit. Kit. Come yeah. on. So, so, so it just shows pictures. Like, I'm just looking. I don't know yeah. totally what this is. Just well, anytime it, there's an all-male panel. Anytime there's an all-male panel. Um, well, not anytime. Somebody has to send it to this Tumblr host who then posts it. But um, originally, I would... little descriptions. A little description of when and where it was. And it's not very... Um, what I like about it is it's kind of artful, funny. It's not very intense shaming, right? There's not single individuals uh, pulled out. But then a colleague and I were talking, and he pointed out that they had actually started shaming two- and three-person panels. Oh, wow. And right. so I actually wrote this little piece for a German magazine, but how um, the, you have to, whenever you're using shame or honor, you know, so this should interest you as well, is you have to determine where these thresholds are for good or egregious behavior. And the idea that you would shame a panel where there, were tw- there was a 25% chance that both individuals would be male from a 50-50 population, right, seems absurd. And, and yet, no matter where we decide the behavior is shameful, we are setting – these thresholds are very value-laden. I'm They're coming for it. us, David. They're coming just, for us. Yeah, exactly. I, I, Two men. David Hasselhoff over our face. I'll be honored. I'll welcome that. I'm just going to put up pictures of individual keynote speakers who are men. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so this this gets to the this conversation about uh, the the incredible power that all of a sudden is is in the hands of some nerd who opens a Tumblr account, right? The ability to introduce so, sort of I mean it's it's a it's a new kind of vigilantism that is that is pr- pretty cheap, right? I mean ch- cheap not in a not in a pejorative sense. I mean it's like it's not difficult to get the attention of yeah, I mean, this site is is kind of cute and um, and clever, and and so maybe you wouldn't if you just heard about this kind of sense the kind of discomfort that could come with this. But I think another example is the the sort of racist at work site, which allows is crowdsources allows people to even post sections of their email from their bosses and call them out. And this has actually led to many people losing their job at work. Um, so. So that kind of thing, the, the all-male panel, no one's losing their job over this. Right. But yeah. this is actually, the, this other site is specifically to call out certain individuals. What's it called? Racist at work? It's something, I mean, if you just Google sort of website racist at work, it should come up. I don't know the URL off the top of my head. Racist getting fired? Racist. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> is that what it is? Yes. It's another Tumblr thing. So right. Tumblr... Is the new Twitter the for shaming? It's the new platform, yeah. This is, yeah. This is a shaming platform. They do other things, too. <laughs> Welcome to 2003. Yeah, like, I, get, I, I, I get that sometimes people get fired from Twitter shaming, or, but I think those are very isolated cases, and that most of the time, these things come and go, and... Nobody really cares, except the people who are all worked up about it on Twitter, or the people I, who are... Okay, so there are two ways of looking at it. One is that may be true that very few people actually lose their job, especially relative who make to making big mistakes online, which a lot of people do. But I do think there's it's very widespread that people Google you before you get a job. Yeah. So it could mm-hmm. be that the major cost is to your future self, not your current self. So it could be, but it could also be that people have a very short attention span when it comes to these things. And if they Google something and they see that you are the target of a day and a half Twitter kerfuffle, um, 
they're not really going to care, right? Well, but but I thought that that I I thought Tamler that you were super outraged, for instance, at this woman who got fired for tweeting Justine Sackow. Yeah. Yeah, right. no, that was bad, but but I think that's like that's very rare that that happens. But but I just so, but know, I don't think that the 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 commonality is what to the extent that this is possible now, and and you know whenever it works, um, I, I I don't know if what you're saying is that the that it is properly calibrated most of the time. No, and I think okay. it's bad. Like I I don't think people should do it. I think it's I, I think it's most of the time just lame, but I also think people overreact to the scope of the problem as if this is some serious threat that we now have to deal with with Twitter shame. I see. And and it trickles down too like grad students now are afraid to to go on blogs right. and post under their own name and you know this was how like I got my visibility in large part is through blogs and stuff. And now grad students and then assistant professors are scared because they're worried about the shaming. And I guess my point is, I don't think they should worry. I don't think these things have the widespread impact on your careers for the most part. But it just really depends on what you do. Right. It really depends. You know, we've mentioned on the podcast, like a, a, a particular evolutionary psychologist who who tweeted out this one thing. Right. The consequences mm-hmm. were pretty severe. To me, the comparison is in the absence of Twitter, there were there was no possibility of that sort of severe consequence from one, you know, comment that yeah, right. he could have been drunk and just said that out at a party and nobody would have known about it right. he could have yeah. even published it in a newspaper and people wouldn't have known right probably right that's the kind of crazy fish. right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that's more the problem of twitter as like this permanent document of what you said digital right? footprint but it's not even that it's permanent it's that it can have the the yeah. impact of it is can be so severe compared to the behavior even if it's temporary, it can have, right, you can lose your job. Well, and thank you, because what you're pointing out is the exact, the, the way in which um, those arguments about Justine Sackow, for instance, were, the outcome of that was that people were saying shaming is terrible. Yeah. But right. it was really about the disproportionality. Right, right. And that's what didn't get through in that kind of conversation, was like, no, the, the punishment doesn't fit the crime. It's not that shaming is terrible. Right. right. And and that's where it's one of this is one of those uh rare instances in which the ability to communicate with thousands of people in any just in an instant has fundamentally changed the the psychological consequences of of our actions. So in in pre like before you really had to rely on gossip and it was powerful and it's you know but in a in a small scale society or even in just a, a modern society 100 years ago 50 years ago gossip would only get you so far and i think it's because one of the barriers to gossip would be like if so if i have built up a reputation it provides me a buffer against gossip to a certain extent in that if for instance tamler heard somebody say did you hear pizarro said this tamler might actually through the grapevine here and defend me and there is, I, I feel like it's just a, a, a much... And you could clear it up. And like, I, the group is small enough that it could be cleared up if it wasn't... Yeah, you could, you could even go to the people who were talking about you. But all of a sudden now, 
a perfectly reasonable response, which is to fire off a tweet um, to somebody who said something that you think is off-putting is magnified by just the masses, right? All all it takes is a one retweet from a particularly, you know, dense... Prominent, right. Prominent, right. And, and, And all of a sudden, and this is a point I was trying to make before, which is no individual is miscalibrating their behavior. I mean, aside from just what what Tamler might call being a busybody, um, it doesn't seem so unreasonable to say that was a dick move to like by just tweet that back to a person, right? But all of a sudden now you can get 100,000 people saying that to you and the consequences to your person, like, you know, given what shame does, like it just sucks. But I, I mean, this whole new digital sphere is a bit of a learning curve, and I'm kind of heartened by the fact that, Tamler, your students are saying, I don't want to do that. I mean, because this is what we're going through right now, are these, are these growing pains of how do we behave online, where we do have anonymity and we don't have a physical face-to-face interaction. And so, yes, I mean, I agree that people may be overly conservative or cautious, but it's also good that people don't just say whatever they're thinking in a drunken moment to the world. Right. No, no, no. That's fine. But the issue that people worry about is you take some little quote of yours out of context. Like these people aren't going to like po- post drunk. Like uh, that's not what people were doing before is getting really drunk and posting something, uh, posting a blog on free will online or something like that. <laughs> yeah. The issue I can't is that actually, I think I have seen a few of those. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I know. And I've, I'm sure I've done that too. But I think the worry is that something that you said is going to get taken out of context, or maybe you transgressed some new norm that, you know, that you had no idea existed anymore. <laughs> you used gender pronouns improperly right. or, or, or whatever. And now you're, people think, you know, you're never going to get a job or your future is going to be impaired. And I actually think that's not the case. The, what's deceiving is the, the internet is expressing outrage. But like most people don't give a shit. But but it doesn't seem that way because online it's like you're getting trashed for a couple of days. But actually nobody cares. But I, I hear except you. Those but, I, people. but I also think a lot of people do rely on the internet to look up people's reputations before they meet them. Whether it's for a job interview, a blind date, uh, uh, you're going to the same event. And if this kind of material comes up on you, like you can't escape that. It really is. It is shameful. And I mean, that's why these reputation management services are making so much money trying to clean up people's online reputations. Right. That's the thing is you never know. You you really never know who's going to care if it if it exists online. But the other thing is that even if it doesn't have material consequences, the very the very power of shaming is that it's such an aversive psychological response that even if nobody actually cares um, in the sense that nobody fails to hire you or refuses to publish your book or something, the experience of being shamed on Twitter, I mean, I feel like I would die, right? And some people may just really, for for some stupid mistake, feel like complete shit. Um, in well, a way teenagers, that, <clears throat> there have been many cases of that. Right. It basically opens you up to have to to being at the whim of the response of strangers in a way that makes me kind of uncomfortable. So, Tamler, you're, you're saying that you think this whole thing, the phenomenon is overblown. Yeah. So let's say 
a bunch of people start Twitter shamed me right now. You know, like, take your pick for all the things that we've said on this podcast. So I would maybe give put out a tweet saying, you know, this quote that everyone's passing around is taken out of context and then whatever if there's a bunch of people i don't know and who are anonymous and who nobody knows who they are except themselves are saying all this like i guess whatever and it'll be over in a day but now i'm going on very bad wizards and i google you and this is the first thing that comes up about you Oh, wait, that there are a bunch of anonymous weirdos on Twitter that said some bad things about him? Like, there, if uh, you're not going to hire me based on that, then I don't, you know, like, uh, it's uh, this, probably not going to work out anyway. This says something interesting about you, and this is why, like, I, I maintain that your book on honor will be sort of like an anthropologist on Mars, <laughs> right? Like, you, like, it really strikes me that you don't have the intuition that this is just so aversive in and of itself as an experience like you you what you're pointing out is that you personally don't care that much about being twitter shamed what a bunch of anonymous people on twitter i care about like my friends and my colleagues right but I that don't doesn't care. mean that other people don't have this reaction well, that okay. they fight, right so yeah that's true well the other thing is i think you may be underestimating the relationship between social media and the mainstream established media, which is what happened with Justine Sackow, was not isolated to Twitter. Gawker then picked right. it up, right? Oh, and Gawker York is the worst. Times now ran. And I feel like every now there's a book about it, so it just opens us up for her every time. Like, there is no escaping this single tweet now for the rest of her life. Except she's kind of a celebrity now because of it, and she landed on her feet really well, and yeah, she went yeah, through and hell. Soon, and like... soon she'll probably give a TED Talk like Monica Lewinsky did. I mean, that's right. the thing about our society is that eventually <laughs> it comes back around and and you it works out i mean jonah lehrer has a book deal oh wow wow uh, but so, I, I, I mean i do think that it's that it's important to point out though that in in not a i'm not trying to be insulting but you are particularly shameless no He's talking like to you, i'm like yeah. sh- i'm a, i'm shameless when it comes to the anonymous people but like when it comes to my people i care about i i think i'm highly sensitive to shame and but as, as they said respect, i think in a previous as, episode um strangers are just friends you haven't met yet <laughs> that's right that's right yeah, i love them all i love all. I, <laughs> no this I is mean, how so, you have to see the world this could be people you would care about uh, if you knew them yeah i mean i, I want to crawl right. in a hole at the thought of like uh, you know a thousand people being offended by something i said even though it was completely taken out of context i, I, I actually just really well it may be why you chose psychology and he chose philosophy <laughs> philosophy but so what is your position on this jennifer you know forgetting my internet shamelessness are you seem on the one hand for the use of internet shaming on on the other hand express the same concerns about it that that david does that's probably why the book is is not uh maybe for the average kind of reader because it doesn't take a strong position either way, I think, ultimately. Yeah. Because it, it, I think really shame is complicated. And to say, like, yes, go for it under any circumstance is, is a mistake. And to also rule it out entirely is a mistake. And so there we lie in the middle, like academics, you know, just making these nuanced arguments that no one really cares about. <laughs> <laughs> well, you must have a str- slightly. So I, I, I yeah. really think that the Twitter shaming in ten years probably won't even be as big of an issue. This is part of learning the tool, part right. of the the 
the anonymity that existed that doesn't even exist today in the same way it did three years ago. Yeah. And now you have all these, you know, you have to verify your identity and link it to your <laughs> Facebook account, and people can't be as vicious under non-anonymous circumstances. So as we see that stripping away, stripping away, I think we're going to find much more civility online. So there's this- I think that's already seeing that a little bit. Already seeing it. And, and the message of this Justine Sackhout story was a kind of culture of self-regulation, which I think may actually be what emerges. But as a result- of the technology and the tools not allowing us the anonymity we used to have. So I'm just not so caught up in those like individual cases as I am in how we can use this against corporations for really large-scale problems that are seem intractable. Why do we allow anonymous comments, period? Why, if you're going to contribute to something, shouldn't it be like it was for, yeah. the, for the rest of human history that you have to put your name to it? And then that, that already puts, that puts you now out as a member of somebody that could be called out for it. Well, so a lot of the most respectable sites are no longer, they do no longer allow an anonymous comments. So Some don't Times, even allow comments anymore. I mean, some don't even allow yeah. comments anymore. But I, you know, I've read a lot of things where people were saying, like, I don't want to spend time in the comments section because it's so ugly. Right, and right. so then you find sites that are really concerned about sort of content and reputation saying, okay, we don't want it. We don't want this for our readers. Then if they don't want to spend time here, that's a bad thing. Right. I think every academic field has an anonymous blog where people just post uh, anonymous things about and and anything goes and it's just the ugliest side just the darkest side of humanity and certainly of the that profession but, but there is there is a power on you know on the other hand there's a power to having um the ability to post things anonymously because the powerless can do you know actually report things that they wouldn't normally be Right. This is why people are like have mixed feelings about Facebook requiring your actual name. Yeah, sure. Account, right? But I mean, there it's a cost benefit equation. And w- I went to a talk about anonymous, and and the woman was saying, you know, anonymous is not even possible. The group in, in the same way that it was two years ago because of the different footprints that we're leaving. I mean, the question, I think there will be eventually zero anonymity unless you're a super, super high-powered hacker. This is why I really am a fan of, you know, the all end-to-end encryption that Apple supports. <laughs> I will fight with them to be able to, because I, as, as afraid as I am of, of being shamed, as long as I have things that I can say without anybody ever seeing, I'm okay. I'm okay with it. I don't have guilt. I have shame. I think the the landline's going to make a real reemergence. <laughs> yeah. This problem is going to be solved by Mr. Robot, by Sam Esman. <laughs> Whatever he says, I agree with. You agree with? So yeah. hopefully. Oh, okay. I have one question that it strikes me now, for maybe for both of you, it, it strikes me and, and it even says something about me that it took this long to bring it up. We've talked about shame even in the context of cultural differences about collectivists and individualistic cultures, but we've still focused on the individual being shamed or experiencing shame when in fact, so much of what like the way in which shame works in collectivist cultures is that you feel ashamed because of the actions of somebody else. And so that's something I was going to ask Tamler um, because your entire philosophy is motivated by your feelings for your daughter. Um, is there a feeling that your daughter could engage in behavior that would make you feel shame as a father? Yeah, 
Absolutely. And that seems like the especially powerful kind of shame. I mean, this is you, people... Collective shame. Yeah, yeah. And people, right? Like people, seppuku is, you, you could kill yourself because of the actions of, of your family members in some places. I think it's a, a case of this that's really interesting right now is the mother of one of the Columbine shooters, right? Has her, her book out. Right. The memoir, right. Right. I mean, to me, that's a very, must be a very heavy burden to carry. By the way, it's much more likely that I will do something to shame my daughter. <laughs> than vice versa. Well, well, we'll put her on here. Embarrassment. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I think, like, you know, if our kids hear all the shit we said, you know, I don't think they'll ever listen to it. Some any. people listen with, to, with their kids. No, no, no I, I mean, my daughter hears me recording. Yeah. That's the first time she heard me cursing is when I had to, like, record um, one of these episodes. Really? Yeah. That was probably the 10 millionth time my daughter heard me cursing. Um, uh, I'm, I'm banking on the fact that she just won't care to listen to any of our episodes. But, um, but, uh, but I mean, this is, it is one, one of the, it seems as if like my sense of personal justice is violated if you make me feel shame for something that somebody in my group did, right? This is my Kantian coming out. I'm struggling. Yeah. I'm like my South American and my Kantian are fighting intrapsychically right now because yeah. on the one hand, I'm like, yeah, you should feel shame for your family and what they do. And that's a way in which we regulate each other's behavior. And that's good. But on the other hand, fuck, man, if I have to feel the shame for the actions of somebody who's like just blood related to me, like that doesn't seem right. I'm rooting for the South American. <laughs> I feel like in the U.S. at least we have far less of that than in other cultures. You know that you do, you yeah. don't have to feel ashamed of what your family has done. It's kind of strange. It's you know, it, and it was a source of constantly regulating my own behavior. The thought that my dad would be like feel shame about me. So he used to still to you know I would fight against it, but I mean up until probably my years as a postdoc, he would just. <laughs> You would tell, tell me to pull up my pants because my pants were always sagging. And you could just tell the shame in his voice at the thought that he used to literally ask me when I would tell him I have, yeah, I got invited to give a talk. He would say, what are you going to wear? That's, that was the question. Cause he was like the thought of me showing up to like a talk looking bad was, and it, it both motivated me, but hurt just the thought that like, that, that, that he would be affected. By yeah. That. Yeah, I, I mean, I you resented know, it. It's it's funny, like, I agree with you, Jennifer, that this is less of an issue for us. And yet, there's kind of asymmetry, because on the flip side, the pride side, it does yes. seem like people are right. very much like, right, that's a good they point. take pride in their, well, ki- in their kids' accomplishments, in their family accomplishments, and they even get credit for it, and that's that's not as diminished it seems like really because i i was thinking about this as someone who does not have kids but i was thinking you know if i have kids people are going to blame me when they do something wrong but when they do something right it's going to be like nice work to the kid (laughs) and like the parent had nothing because you see that with like brad brad pitt's parents aren't you don't even ever. know who they are. Yeah, we have no idea who they are. No, but I'm saying that we feel pride in the, the kids' parent. accomplishments, and actually, I do think that the parents get a lot of credit. Like, I get, yeah, I have a near perfect child, and you know, I do feel like people. <laughs> she must. She must be adopted. It's mostly Jen, but uh, <laughs> that gets the credit. But still, one of us does. So here's a question, Tamler or Jen- Jennifer. Do you have graduate students? No, I have a postdoc. So have you ever felt? 
I think it's more than embarrassment, but shame at like one of your students presenting something in a poor fashion. I haven't had to, but I I, I do worry about when that day comes. Right? Do you, yes. Do you, like, don't you get, does Tamler, do you get nervous when, like, say your student is presenting in front of, like, yes. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I, feel I like mean, that's so cool. The, and can, also pride. Yeah, like, a lot of pride if yeah. they do well. Right. I wouldn't feel pride if I wouldn't, if I didn't have the capacity to feel shame for them. Like, I wouldn't have the capacity to feel pride for them either. Well, anyway, it's just a point. I want but to. now, isn't your Kantian <laughs> self saying? But that's just because you're ta- you're you're feeling pride for your role in them being a good speaker and guilt or no, my shame. Kant- for- my Kantian self is saying that my emotion isn't justified. But uh, nonetheless, right. I as as the child oh, of that's Latin even Americans, worse. right? So as, <laughs> as the child of Latin Americans, I feel it no matter what. I'll yeah. feel it, even though I, even if I resent the feeling, like I will feel it. I feel shame at your actions sometimes, Tamler. <laughs> All right, last question that I have. So you tell a story about your friend Kate and Saran. Saran, yep. Saran. Uh, uh, so th- that's her husband. Yeah. And I guess she there was some like designer uh, bag that was going to broadcast how great you were to the environment by carrying around a bag. and It says, not I'm not a plastic bag, yes. Right. I, and so Kate, who's a cynic and a misanthrope, as you describe her, <laughs> yeah, said she's great. that she wants, to, she wants to get that bag as a relic of the environmental movement or something like that. Yeah, that's right. And so Saren, Saran took Saren. this as... Saren. Oh, I said Saren. <laughs> he took it as some sort of mission and went and stood in line for two hours to get one of these bags. Yeah, which I still have. <sighs> which you which you now have. Right. He lined up for two hours <laughs> to get a bag because his wife like made some comment. Yeah, he's re- he is like a very uh, generous and diligent man. So she w- she really wanted to get me this and and. I don't know why she was busy or maybe just annoyed at the prospect, but he's like, yeah, I'll do it. And then it wound up being this really funny story when they retold it to me and just a kind of parody of what the environmental movement has become, I think. Yeah. See, I don't know. Like, I, I think he's, uh, is, he's domesticated a little bit. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> was that what you took away from that? <laughs> Tam- that Tamler, you should also write a book on love and one on duty. And then yeah. you have like sort of a trifecta of emotions that you don't quite understand. I hate lines. I, like, I, there's nothing that could get me to stand in a two-hour line. Never really? Mind. Yeah, I hate lines. Um, I mean, it's I, a really good question for your priorities of like, what would you stand in two hour, a line for two hours for? Um, and for some people, that bar is just really low. Yeah. Saran. Saran. Yeah. So you think, though, that it, they have a good marriage, that she's not exploiting them or taking advantage of oh, them? Oh, she, she's definitely exploiting him, but he's, uh, he's a willful party. <laughs> but what's that? For adapted preferences. Uh, you know, it's like... She's uh, irresistible. Yeah. You'd stand okay. into to an hour uh, yeah, lineup for her, too. Just never met the right woman. <laughs> yeah. Make me stand in a two-hour I'm hour so line. glad your wife doesn't listen to any of our episodes. <laughs> All right, so my, my last question is, is the future of the environmental movement um, a positive one? Is, it, <laughs> is, that, is that it for a serious question? You hope so. Are we going to just fuck it up? Well, we're already fucking it up, but... I, I mean, is there any hope? 
Is it irredeemably is fucked up? Um, depends on what variable you're talking about, but there is hope. And actually, um, we just have written a piece, my colleague and I, about the way that shame will be used in a sort of post-COP21 Paris Agreement world. And that actually the, the primary mechanism of the Paris Agreement is reputation-based. So I think we'll, we'll also see shame playing a bigger role in the future, and especially because you really see with climate in the last few years that very solid values coming in around this issue. So I think the question is whether or not people can pay attention long enough, keep it in the headlines, you know, keep, keep people's feet to the, the increasingly warmer fire. And, and, you know, take pictures of people driving SUVs and post them on Twitter with a, <laughs> with a shame sticker on it. Yeah, like, I mean, right. I'd rather put, shame Congress to, to change the, the mile per gallon laws and get Hummers off the road. Yeah. But It seems like, a, like a, a, just a weapon for punishment that we're, we're only scratching the surface of now that we can deploy shame with such efficiency. We need our Oppenheimer of shame. <laughs> Yeah, it'll be, and it'll have a David Hasselhoff logo. I'm be, become the shamer of worlds. Um, <laughs> all right, uh, all right. Well, thank you so much for joining yeah, us. This was you, fun. Thanks. thanks for having me. It was about time. I, you know, it was. You're right. <laughs> it was. No. no, it's really an honor. You guys do great work, and I'm really honored to be part of it. Thank you. Just a very bad wizard.